Today, we're talking to Tahir, CTO of security at Salesforce, about doing away with passwords in place of multi-factor authentication and more. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Yeah, I was born in, in Egypt. Oh, very cool. And how long have you been a citizen? A citizen, 30 some years. I just got my fourth passport. So it must be 30 plus years. Wow. I lived in the Bay Area since 79. So 43 years and counting. So you've gotten to watch all the emergence of the technology in Silicon Valley then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had fruit orchards when I actually first came to California. It was not high tech. We had National Semiconductor and Hewlett Packard and that was it. Can you give me like the background of what it was like from 1979 to today, watching Silicon Valley like grow? Yeah, I mean, I came to Stanford to to get a PhD, and you know, I got accepted at Stanford. So I said, "Heck, I'm definitely going to Stanford." So I did that. And honestly, the plan was to get a degree and maybe work a little bit and then go back. I've been here for 43 years. I'm not. I don't think I'm going back. But, you know, I still got friends and so on, family. When I first joined, I mean, Stanford was a big thing back then, still is a big thing. But you will actually, like, drive on El Camino Real, which is the big the big street down here, and you see fruit orchards, literally. You, you stop and, you know, pick up a peach or something and you move on. We did have, you know, Hewlett Packard, which is actually was my first job after the Ph.D., and National Semiconductor, I mean, it was the industry was very, very young. Apple had started by the time I graduated, but was a tiny company. And, you know, there is this kind of history. Uh, downtown Palo Alto now is a humming place. It's an awesome place. Yeah, I've gotten to visit down there. It's, it's definitely got that, that feel and that vibe. Yeah. How did you get involved with the SSL project? Are you the founder? Or did you participate with a group of people? I saw that you are on Wikipedia listed as the father of SSL. I want to I want to explain that. What is that? Good question. So, I went to a IDC conference in 1994 where Jim Clark was supposed to speak. So I knew Jim because he was actually a professor at Stanford when I was a grad student. So I said, oh, I want to hear this guy. So I went to hear him out and he talked about cryptography, which is actually the topic of my PhD. So I'm, I'm a professional cryptographer. And I said, why is this guy talking about cryptography? He's a, he's a computer graphics guy, actually, by trade. So I went to him after, after his presentation and chat and said, yeah, we're starting this company called Mosaic. We're going to do e-commerce over the internet. So that was actually the original vision. So uh, I ended up becoming the chief scientist at Netscape, like really early on. And the vision was to enable e-commerce. And we knew that the internet was so open that if we didn't secure the channel between the buyer and the seller, things would go crazy. Things still went crazy, but, but you know, we were good in, in, in making sure that the connection between the, the buyers and the sellers is in fact secured. So the idea of SSL started in Netscape a little before I joined, actually. So it was not my idea. I ended up writing the patents. There are two patents that Netscape had for the original SSL method. And then we put a team together. So I I hired the team that actually worked on the SSL 3.0 spec, which is kind of the beginning of this world. So I did not write the spec. I just was sort of the, the godfather of that thing. And the patents got accepted. 
you know, after that, we said, you know, we're not going to own the entire e-commerce world. It's way too big for one small company to own. And we knew that Microsoft was actually working on a competing protocol to SSL. So if we did not come together and, and do one, I think life would have been a lot harder today. So at Netscape, we agreed that the right thing to do was to take SSL and make it a standard in the IETF. And we actually brought Microsoft with us. So we had one big, huge meeting in the IETF. And, you know, we proposed that we make this a standard. And, and Microsoft stood up and said, yes, we're going to sign up if this becomes an IETF standard and not owned by anybody else. And so TLS 1.0. Uh, became an actual standard. So I was the co-head of the IETF working group that actually made TLS 1.0 a standard. So the father of SSL, I, I, mean, I did not write the Wikipedia page, so I don't <laughs> know who did, as you know, nobody ever knows who's actually writing on Wikipedia. But it kind of it's an implication, you know, that I both wrote the patents, built a team, and made it a standard and promoted it in the world, kind of thing. Yeah, it was a good route. That is very cool. What comes after SSL? Will we always need SSL? Will there be some new technology, some new way of browsing, some new standards that unsurp it from its current dominance? So, you know, TLS 1.3, which is kind of the latest standard, which is not really being used all over the place quite yet, is based on a modification of the, of the, of the protocol. It's actually closer to the Google Quick protocol than anything. It carries the TLS name because TLS was designed to be backward compatible. So if one side has a more recent version than the other side, then, you know, we'll agree on which version to use kind of thing. So is it going to be completely replaced? I don't believe so. Because there is billions of copies of that thing. It's in every fridge and in every, you know, doorbell and, you know, laptop and mobile and everything. It's kind of part of the Internet as far as that goes. That does not mean that it does not continue to get, you know, fixed and, you know, get more security and perhaps more efficiency and so on. So it will continue to get better. Who manages the project now? Like, how is it managed? I don't have a lot of knowledge in this area. Who can contribute to it? How do contributions get approved and released? How does that process work? The IETF does, the Internet Engineering Task Force, uh, which does most of the Internet protocol standards. It's open. Anybody can go to these meetings. Anybody can, can provide feedback into the RFCs and propose things. And, you know, a community of people will show up every once in a while in some random city in the world and work on the new proposals and see if we need to update something or not. It's open to everyone. You can go and propose changes as far as that goes. Does it have a legal entity associated with it? I don't actually know the answer to this. Okay. But there is an agreement, you know, that the IETF sets the standard. So you are supposed to use an implementation that satisfies the RFC exactly. There are very, very few entities that actually implement SSL. Because implementing cryptographic protocols is, is really not for the hobbyists. So most people will just get it from whatever. There's lots and lots of open source. OpenSSL is very well known. So that's how people implement things. So if you get open source, then you're bound by the open source license, which you know is, is attached to the project. If you buy it from a vendor, then, then you have a contract with the vendor, what you can and cannot do. 
But the protocol itself is kind of fixed by the IETF. Is, is there a, like a president of the IETF? They're not called president. There is actually people responsible for general areas okay. of the IETF. So the security area has actually a named individual who, quote unquote, runs that. Got it. Although the contributions to the standards come from the world, basically. Yeah, but there's some handoff of relationships and positioning from one generation to the next. It's like who's involved, who's around, who knows it deeply, who's there all the time. And it just sort of naturally flows. It's it's like a board of directors for a charity where there's like formal voting and and things of that nature. No, uh, the, the voting for the standards come from the working group. Right. 100%. As in... The individuals who run these things don't actually contribute to the the content itself. They sometimes help in resolving conflict, like the group is split between two different opinions completely and nobody's budging. Or somebody's standardizing a patented idea, which we did with, with SSL, but part of what we did is that we said the pants are for the world to use. Nice. Uh, so we actually opened up the pants to everyone. We needed the patent for defensive reasons. Very cool. You're educating me a lot about the SSL. <laughs> it's underneath every single e-commerce transaction that happened since 1996. Yeah, it's ubiquitous. I wasn't programming before 1996. I probably started writing code in 98. Uh, so for me, it was ubiquitous. It was just always there. It's like, okay, you yeah. need this. This is what you do. And I never really looked under the hood. You know, Whatever that says about me, I don't know. I was always focused on no. how do I achieve an outcome with the code? And then how do I do that while minimizing the risk that I'm assuming. And so SSL was just like, okay. And then it's subsequently gotten a lot easier. There's been all sorts of projects. I think it was open SSL, mm-hmm. different hosts and vendors. We won't name specific ones, but they've implemented various ways of like, you can get a basic free SSL by clicking one button, or you can go get a paid one and, and, and stuff right. like that. Do you know, is there a difference between like the free SSL that you can get and then paying for an SSL? Not in terms of the protocol definitions. Okay. The, the, the reason ITF was the right party to bring into this is that people have to abide by what the protocol says because we want it in our operability across. That's actually the most important thing. So the, the difference when you get a paid SSL is that you get support from the vendor, which you know a lot of people want and need, and there's nothing wrong with that. And if, if an entity you know, knows how to handle open source, they just bring the open source. It's, it's completely free for people to do whatever they wish. I want to talk a little bit about you and your career. You clearly are crushing it, <laughs> right? When you get to a position where you are, you happen to be very technically competent, but also good as a leader, right? And so I'm curious, how do you manage it or how do you look at it? Do you spend like a bucket of your time improving as a leader and then dedicated time understanding the technology? How do you stay in the details when you're so high? You know, I I wish there was a silver bullet there. I just do fun things is the answer to you. So when I left Netscape, I said, what should I do now? And I was still in my 40s. So, you know, it was like, I need to do something. I'm not going to be able to, to retire. So I started a company. So I actually threw myself into what does it mean to be a CEO of a young startup? You know, that company got sold. So I, I just I just do the things that I believe are the right use of time. There's no really magic formula there. I want and need to stay technical because that's my background. 
Yeah, I don't write code anymore. I haven't written code in a while. That actually needs a lot of focus. But I need to know if somebody's kind of saying, you know, the truth or BSing a little bit. Yeah. And you're surrounded by experts, too, in the act of your everyday. So you're picking up stuff by being around all of these people having these conversations. All the time. And, you know, as they say, if you don't learn every day, there's something wrong. Yes. So we all have to learn something new every single day. Otherwise, life gets very boring. How did you uh, meet Parker Harris and Mark Benioff and all of them? Interesting. Uh, So I, I started Securify in 98 when I was leaving Netscape. Mark Benioff was an angel investor in that company. So I met him before Salesforce ever started, actually. He was still at Oracle. And we met in that cafeteria in in Oracle, which is, you know, a 15-minute drive from my home. And he agreed to invest in the company. So I actually knew him personally. When the opportunity for the security CTO came up some 10 10 years ago, I actually pinged him and said, hey, is this real or this is a fictitious thing that I just heard about? So, you know, it turns out that it was real and I got contacted by the company and I interviewed and I'm still here. Yeah, it's a very enjoyable place because the growth the company has experienced is awesome. And, you know, building an enterprise application suite in the cloud is just a magnificent thing. It is where the future is going for sure. Well, I'm a fan of the Salesforce culture, even though I don't participate in it. I've had the following exposure to it. I got to meet Parker a few years ago when he came on the show and that was my first sort of flag to like pay attention to the culture there because of the types of conferences you guys put on and the events and all of that. And then secondarily, I met through one of the funds that like invested in me, I met a company that does a lot of like marketing work with you. It's like one of like a partner or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And their culture was really good. And then I found out that you're one of their bigger clients. And then they were telling me about the work that they did with you guys. And it just kind of made sense. Salesforce has built this ecosystem of vendors and partners and clients that all have a, a very similar style and personality. And it aligns with who I am and how I run my company. So while I don't do anything like directly with Salesforce other than these interviews every once in a while, I really enjoy what they have built. Is that one of the things that attracted you to want to work there? So the, the culture at Salesforce isn't very well known. It's transparent. It's, it's, it's just a great group of people. You go and talk to anyone about any topic and, and everybody's open to, to discussions. And the company does do what it preaches. The amount of give back that this company does in the world is amazing. And you refer to it as an ecosystem. It's actually more of an economy than just an ecosystem. Yes. There are millions of people who benefit from the Salesforce uh, economy and built careers not being inside a Salesforce, but being in the ecosystem. That is just amazing. And that was part of the vision from the beginning. How do you, you could do anything you want in the world, right? You've got the credentials, you've got everything needed. How do you view how you spend your time at Salesforce? I mean, look, I'm a software guy at the end of the day, right? So, so since my, my very first job after I, I graduated from Stanford, I, I'm a software guy. So the idea of running software in the cloud makes a lot of sense for anybody who's in the you know method of, of building new things for the world. So thinking about who is going to try to attack, what the nature of attacks look like. And this is not a Salesforce specific thing. This is this is for all connected in 
which is everybody these days. So any connected company, you know, has people thinking about who the attackers might be, what are they likely to do, what are the assets that we have that we want to protect, you know, how do we collaborate with each other to make sure that we all know who's doing what and so on and so forth. You know, so Salesforce included, basically, it's it's that the security program covers all aspects of cybersecurity and, and things around cybersecurity. So the it, you know, there are certain threats that basically get on top of mind depending on the time. But in general, it's the complete security program that, that we think about. What is the security thing, for lack of a better term, that all businesses should be thinking about? Because there's so many different areas to focus. There's so many different security companies selling different nightmares. What's like the one thing that people should at least make sure they have a, like as a basic base covered? This is a, an involved question. You're looking for a single answer, so I'm going to answer it in a different way if you don't mind. Perfect, yeah. So there are certain things that you have to do yourself as a business. And number one is understanding what the business actually is, who the customers are and what the relationships look like and what do you actually care about. Because whoever is going to attack is going to attack something that you care about, that has something of value, right? Because that's why businesses exist. So every business needs to understand what they have that people would like to steal or destroy or whatever. We are, in fact, all connected today. If you look at attacks and how attacks have been successful, 90-some plus percent of the successful breaches were because somebody used the bad password. It's so silly. You know, we're in 2022 now. We're 25-plus years in this journey. And people still use passwords that I can guess sitting here in about two minutes. So that is actually the number one attack vector. It's kind of simple. So, you know, Salesforce went out a couple of years back and said, hey, all Salesforce customers use multi-factor auth. And, you know, there's multi-factor auth in in a lot of different places. Some of them are probably harder than others to, to, you know, open up and stuff. But at least not use a single password to log into the Salesforce ecosystem because that is the number one attack vector, like by a lot. So, yeah, if, if I were to advise somebody force all your users to 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 update your your authentication just don't allow a password to be the the only authenticator there's been a lot of talk about passwordless like no password authentication mm-hmm. it seems a little bit ambiguous is there a couple different implementations of this what is it like how do you describe it from a high level so you know, a password is not a natural thing in the in- should not not have been a natural thing in the internet to begin with, and people think it is my fault actually that passwords exist in the way they exist today. So I accept the blame. The reason is inside of SSL, which is any connection you connect to anything these days has an SSL connection. Inside of SSL, there is an option that allows the client, the user, to cryptographically prove themselves to the backend. But that was an option, was not actually made as a mandatory thing. The the connection from the, the, the server back is mandatory to have the cryptographic support so that when you go to your bank, you actually do know that it's your bank and it's nobody imitating the bank sort of thing. 
But because, you know, we had no idea how to get billions of people to use cryptographic keys and manage that. So we said, you know, we'll just make it an option, let people use it. And that's how passwords started, actually, believe it or not. The password idea started in IBM research in like the 60s. The idea of a password and was not for connecting to outside resources. It was actually done so that researchers inside of IBM, when they come in the morning, they see the stuff they do. They're not trying to prevent others from seeing it. It's just, it's just a, it, was a, it was a productivity tool rather than a security tool. So we decided to use it as a security tool. There is no requirement that you have to have a password to log into your bank or to your e-commerce thing. It's not, it's not a part of the ecosystem. It's just needed because we needed, you know, the back end needs to know who their customers are. So, so you have to provision something. So there's, there's a number of different ways that the world now is providing that removes passwords completely. Some of them use biometrics, for example. Some of them use technology, actual, you know, cryptographic technology. Some There's a number of different ways. But I, the password is not a necessary part of, of this digital economy ecosystem. It actually is not. It is here just because. But So biometric, that's one way of doing it. Cryptographic, another way mm-hmm. of doing it. Um, right. Can you explain to me the cryptographic way of doing it? Like I, I understand scanning my face or some sort of biometric thumbprint or something like that. I don't understand the cryptographic thing. Do I get some sort of key that I that I hold? Yeah. Or okay, yeah. So you get you get a key on the device, and you kind of provision some flavor of the key to your the back end that you want to log into, so they know that this is that person. So in the back end, they bind the individual with the device and the key and that kind of thing. And then when you log in, you just you just say, hey, I, I, I use my, my face recognition to log into my phone. And the bank knows the phone and knows me and you know knows that I logged in using my, my face. And that key will prove to the back end that, that this is the same thing, basically. It's rather actually straightforward. So it's similar. It's just like when I push code up to GitHub, it's looking at my key, and mm-hmm. that's how I don't have to enter a password when I when I push the code because of my. Well, key I mean, you code. have a GitHub account. But when I when I push code, though, I have the key inside of my like stored. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely it just uses right. that. Yeah. And that's how they know who that person is, and you know, that's it. So so you just need to prove that this is this person. Okay. And depending on the severity of what actually the communications look like. You can have higher and higher levels of authentication. You know, for a GitHub connection, they just want to know it's you. You would probably be annoyed if somebody intercepted that push and adds a few lines of code before it goes to GitHub. That would be annoying, right? That would be very, that would be unacceptable, yeah. There you go. So, so SSL covers these kinds of things. It actually has an integrity check that whatever you sent is the same thing that got received. And it will actually not accept the connection if something changes. That way, if you're attacked by, let's say, like a government that actually has like a lower level in the OSI, right? And they could grab data and manipulate it <laughs> on its path. So this, this I don't know what your code looks like, my friend, but the government <laughs> doesn't care about your code at all. <laughs> Unless you're writing something that I do not know. No comment. So different <laughs> entities will care about different communication channels. Yeah. Thieves want to steal money. That's what they do for a living. It's their job description. So they want 
connections to financial institutions. That's what they do. And then if there is a way for them to, you know, get some of the money their way, they will do it. Governments want to know what their enemies are doing and whoever they believe their enemies are. But, you know, they're not going to intercept the thing because you're buying shoes from Nike. I mean, it's like, who yeah, cares? Yeah. Let's talk about the next big exciting thing that is coming with Salesforce that you're allowed to talk about publicly. Uh, you know, Dreamforce was not too long ago. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, Salesforce does an amazing job with these events. We finally had an in-person event, you know, a couple of months back. And we had some tens of thousands of people running around San Francisco talking about the new world. And so, you know, the, the biggest piece of what, what was announced is what we're calling Genie now, which is kind of how Salesforce manages data. So if you're a Salesforce customer, you'll get data about your customers in the Salesforce ecosystem, and you would understand what they have done in the past, did you market to them, or all kinds of data from different aspects of a customer. And you'll be able to basically, you know, enable your business, grow your business, whatever it is that you need to do. Getting to know the customer more is is a big, big, huge push uh, at Salesforce today, and it has been for several years. But Genie is about data. I'm not a marketing guy, so why it was called Genie is not my issue. <laughs> if a security professional, executive, technologist type person is looking to improve and grow at their career path in security, who should they be reading? What type of activity should they be performing? The security profession, honestly, the best thing is to participate in, in the security groups. There is a number of circles that, you know, of, of security, CISOs and security professionals that meet in different places under different umbrellas, like all over the world. It is, it is really important to get the knowledge firsthand from someone who's actually doing these things. It's hard to read a book today about what should a CISO do. And the reason is, six months from now, we will, in fact, change. That the, the threats are changing. The world is actually changing. Uh, we get to face things that we did not anticipate two years ago. So belonging to these groups, in my opinion, is probably the most important thing to do. Be up to date on things. It's a very, very fast-moving part of the, of the technology world, actually. From a leadership perspective and you know the sense of growing your career, when you founded those companies, what was some of the lessons that you learned from a leadership perspective that's helped you be a better leader today? You know, people are the most important assets in your organization has. That's what you learn very quickly. There's a word in technology that we always refer to, which is disagree but commit. So that's actually really important. You cannot get 10 people in one room and expect they're going to agree because people just don't have the same opinion about anything. But you have to commit. So after we've disagreed, the decision was made, everybody in an organization needs to go after the same goal. If there are people trying to serve their own personal business, you know, uh, businesses or their own personal things, that actually destroys organizations. And I have seen that firsthand. So it's, it's the team that is the most important thing. And leaders of, of small, medium, and large organizations all learn this. Be transparent with people. You know, th this is, this is the, the 21st century. It's not 1950 anymore. So the old-style management is, doesn't even exist anymore. 
be transparent, be open, but make a firm decision and demand that people actually follow the decision. There is no, you can have your opinion, you can state things, but, but people do have to follow the decision when the decision is in fact made. How do you, when you're hiring, how do you find people that you believe will be, you know, A players and do well within your team? Meet people are history. So there's multiple things. If you're hiring experienced people, whether they're in the security space or just in general in technology, they're actually known. Their backgrounds are known. Somebody has known them before. They've done A, B, and C. They've done good work. They've contributed. So it's a matter of fit in what you need to achieve versus what they have done in the past. When you're hiring you know, the younger people graduating from college, you're just sensing what the basic skills are because college grads can learn about everything and very quickly. So, you know, you can actually sense when you're talking to an individual what their appetite looks like. Are they going to really, you know, pivot into a new direction if that is what is needed and, and so on and so forth. So intelligence is interesting, but it's, it's really the aptitude about, you know, belonging to a business that is the most important thing. What questions am I not asking? Well, you asked me what I do every day, and I never answered you. Oh, okay. If you noticed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because every day is different. (laughs) There is no typical day. I talk to customers a lot because Salesforce is extremely customer-centric. It's all about what the customer needs and wants. So I talk to customers a lot. You know, obviously, I talk to a lot of the internal technical teams and, and, and so on. I talk to security peers across the world. And I talk to good people like yourself. I actually just did a webinar like half an hour before you and I started here. So I I do this kind of thing fairly regularly. What was the topic? So in my usual way of answering questions, if I rewind a couple of years, uh, I was chosen as a Marconi fellow in 2019. The Marconi Society existed for a while. And they choose, every year they choose one individual worldwide who contributed to communications because Marconi is, is Marconi, right? Is, is the, the inventor of the radio. So every year, one person or sometimes two gets chosen, you know, as a Marconi fellow. So, so I was chosen with Paul Kocher as Marconi fellows in 2019. So that, that was actually a, a webinar that the Marconi Society was sponsoring to talk about the digital inclusion over the next 10 years, which is a rather intriguing topic. Well, what's the context? Like, what, what is digital inclusion? You know, people talk about the digital divide all the time. Like, in, people in, in poorer countries don't get the connectivity that we get here. We're lucky, right? We're fortunate to be here. We know yes. that. But part of the promise of, of this global internet is to bring people together. It is, in fact, really a new society that we're putting together. It's not perfect. It never will be perfect. But it has a lot of promise. And, you know, we're all here for a reason. So we can exchange views, you know, while using this wonderful system here that you guys put together. I don't know which thing is this. And we can learn from each other a lot quicker. We get access to data. We get access to information. It's sort of unfortunate that 
some of the information is actually not completely trustworthy because we don't actually know the real source for some of that stuff. So it's it's honestly, it's like we're building a new society, but it's a lot more global than anything that humanity has ever done before. And, you know, so, so the individuals on, in that webinar are, are were really amazing. Marty Cooper, who, you know, I mean, people who invented mobile, who, who invented, you know, the founder of Qualcomm. Uh, it was just an, an unbelievable collection of people participating. So, so everybody has their own sort of view on what this world should look like and how do we include everyone. There is 7 billion people uh, on the planet. We believe that maybe 60% of, of that 7 billion are actually connected. Really? So there's a number of people who are not. And, you know, 60% of 7 billion is a very large number of people. And they are in all parts of the world. Obviously, the poorer places struggle to get connectivity. So you're not going to see these people. But, you know, honestly, some of these people may have as big a promise or bigger promise than anybody else. So how do we bring humanity into this ecosystem and allow people to excel at what they want to excel at? And that was the, the premise of the webinar. Very cool. I happened to, before the pandemic, I lived in Florida and mm. cookie cutter neighborhood type deal. Uh, and then we sold everything, bought an RV, traveled around the US for 10 months with the kids. And there we found go. this little farm out in uh, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And the interesting thing about this was it had gigabit fiber mm-hmm. and it's in the middle of nowhere. And then I found out that there was a government program that paid the service providers to run lines specifically to rural areas. Partly Musk uh, tapped into it a little bit with the Starlink uh, funding as well. Um, right. And and so I was really grateful for that. I tell everyone it's my favorite government program. <laughs> so so yeah. we're, we're doing that. Like As a people, we are incentivizing and we're working towards this. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised when you say 60%. The engineering side of me wants to dig deeper into that number. Like, did they age adjust for kids who, you know, can't technically use the internet? Um, hey, 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 hey. The Gen Zs are much better in using the internet than, than I will ever be. Yeah. So the younger people are born into this world. They just, this is part of their world. Yeah, but when they say, I guess to clarify, when they say that there's 7 billion people and 60% are connected, are they doing that based off of like household and access to internet? Or are they saying it's, like a, a one-month-old isn't connected because they're one-month-old? I, I don't think they're talking about the one-month-old uh, individuals. They are talking about the poor environments. Got who, it. Who Got cannot it. actually, who are not funded by their government to get a, a fiber link in, into their neighborhoods. How are we solving this currently? I mean, I, I'd seen Zuckerberg did something where he flew a, a drone that could operate for a long term. And I don't know if that was just a, a test or a project or if it actually became something. How are we helping as the world in this group that you're a part of? What are the big ideas to, to get these people online? Governments have to, to play in this game. They, they need to support their people. Some government want to support their people. Some government honestly want to prevent their people from gaining access to things. Mm-hmm. So you kind of your own a little bit there. The Marconi Society itself is a nonprofit. It just you know tries to get people to talk about interesting things and, and, and promote certain ideas and so on. So it's a matter of bringing the cost of connectivity down and enabling more endpoints to participate. Obviously, the, the Wi-Fi, the, the, you know, the mobile Wi-Fi increased the connectivity by a lot because the vast majority of people in the world 
do not own laptop and never will. You know, the IoT thing that we talk about in, in this industry is kind of intriguing because we're connecting devices that are not meant to communicate, but they are actually part of the network. So the, the, bringing the cost down becomes really important because these are really poor countries and poor areas that honestly cannot afford to bring a fiber link. Is the competition in the economy doing that? Is, is it bringing the cost down? Yeah, there's a lot of efforts to actually bring the cost down, absolutely. From the chip all the way up to the, the end product. Other than security, what would you say is one of your greatest technology interest topics? Interesting question. You know, security to me, when I started out, was an exercise uh, exercise of mathematics. Was not so. I was not actually a security person. I was a cryptographer when I started, and cryptography is basically built on mathematics. So math was actually what I enjoyed. When I grew up into the security world, as the as that economy grew. Trust is actually the most important thing. How do you trust the source of information? So that kind of thing I spent time just thinking through. It's, it's really very interesting. I have not spent technically enough time on machine learning or any of that stuff, although I have interest clearly because it affects the society today and it will probably have a bigger effect tomorrow. So understanding how that works is, is very intriguing. But basically, I, I live in the Internet. When I started with with Netscape, I spent a bunch of years in the payment ecosystem. So payment companies were the number one target because we wanted transactions. And to do a transaction, you just talk to payment people. So so the payment companies were actually a very, really early target for for us to talk to. Hmm. If you could go back in time to when you first started working, your first day of work at your first real big job, and you could give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? So I started at Hewlett Packard Labs in 84 when I finished my PhD at Stanford. I was still mostly academic because I'm just a PhD graduate. I did not work in the industry before. Right now, I'm a true industry person. Focusing on connections with people would be my advice to myself. The thing I actually enjoy the most is talking to people because that's where you learn that's where you accomplish things that's where things really progress the nature of me as an academic was hey i'm going to invent the next you thing i'm going to hide myself in my room and you know go work some stuff out that would have been the advice i would give myself because i've built a lot of good partnerships and and, and relationships uh in the industry over the years that i cherish quite a lot What's the the best advice for people who don't have a lot of relationships currently and and they want to go out there and and work on what you just said? They want to go out there and and get more relationships. How do they do that? People want to know them just as much as they want to know people. This is the thing that is sometimes hard to see. You know, a lot of people in the technical world are are introverted just naturally. You don't have to do anything about it. But that does not mean that, that these introverted people do not want to know others. They just, they just do not know how to go about it. You know, you start with, with many, just like accomplish any big thing in the world. You do baby steps and you, and you see the successes and you see the failures and you learn from both, as it turns out. Just be very explicit about wanting to do that rather than feel comfortable. 
I like that. It's one of the main drivers when I started this show was to just know more people. Uh, I never yeah. expected it to become my full time job. I thought it would, you know, I'd get a VP of engineering at Salesforce or something, <laughs> right? Some cool big company. You're welcome to apply. Yeah. <laughs> and through this, it ended up, you know, becoming my full time job. But one of the things that was driving me it was to know people to be able to speak better, to be able to speak publicly, and just to get better at at that. And one of the things that actually scared me, to your point of baby steps, was I would fear like being on a stage in front of hundreds mm-hmm. of people or thousands. Well, it turns out when you want to start, no one's going to let you on a stage in front of hundreds of people. <laughs> you you start with correct. a table, you start with a, like a small group, and then you work your way up, and then it's a long process. And then you mm-hmm. know you'll get an opportunity, and then all of a sudden your group size will grow, and you'll go from you know speaking to the table or the people that'll listen to you to maybe a small room, and then that'll happen for a year or so, and then you'll go up, and then eventually you find yourself one day getting off the stage after talking to five thousand people. And you're like, oh, that's yeah. this is kind of how it happens. I was actually trained professionally while at Netscape to do public speaking. Really? Yes. So, and I I committed to it. So did the company, because in these days, talking about internet security was an unknown topic. I mean, who would who would actually understand what the heck that was 25 years ago? But somehow, because Netscape was selling things to companies the company needed someone to actually speak about security. And sometimes in a smaller group, sometimes with a single customer, sometimes in a big audience. And the first time they threw me in, 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 in RSA to talk to like 5,000 people audience, honestly, it was a scary event because it's not something that I've done before. And I'm naturally introverted, just like a lot of technology people. But it was an awesome experience. And, you know, I enjoyed it. I think the audience, the audience didn't kick me off, so I think it was okay. Yeah, but it is actually a tough experience. It's not a simple thing that just happens by nature, right? When you talk to a big audience, it's actually very different, and that's what I was taught back then. It's completely different from talking to a small audience. You know, how do you focus? How do you look people in the eye? Who do you focus on? When you have five thousand people, you're not going to see the people in the audience. It's like you're an entertainer at that point in time. Now, there's content that people want to get. So, so it's not like it's a random entertainment, but but it's almost like being an entertainer. When you're presenting to 10 people in, an, in a room, you're actually talking about a subject that we had agreed on and there is an agenda and that kind of thing, which I still do quite a bit. What are some tips for speaking to a large audience? You know, what I, what I was taught is look at the back of the room kind of thing. Don't look, don't look at your feet. And do not hesitate. If, if your thought process got interrupted because we're all humans and you know our brain kind of does whatever it wants to do every once in a while, always have a backup thing you want to say at any point in time. So, so when you get in the middle, have a story. And people love stories. So have, have a couple of stories in the back of your mind. Whenever you get a, you know, a lull in, in your presentation, just say one of these stories. It actually works really well. I see comics do this. Like sometimes they'll forget. Well, I mean, comics are entertainers. It's yeah. not very different from speaking in front of 5,000 people. It's a different thing, but yes. Yeah. This is great. I want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else, any maybe calls to action? Go join salesforce.com. You know, go apply, go get a job at Salesforce. Any calls to action that we want to get out there to the world? No, I, I think you should use Salesforce as a customer more than anything else, actually. Use Salesforce. Yes. Boom. 
You nailed it. We made a podcast. How do you feel? (laughs) It's great. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.